for December 31st, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 235. Eponine can't ask out her gay boyfriend. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Happy New Year's Eve. It's the New Year's Eve edition of the Overthinking It podcast. I'm Matthew Rather from Los Angeles, California, here with the panel. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's time for New Year's resolutions, and we've all seen... Uh, the epic musical film adaptation Les Miserables. So, what is your Les Miserlution? <laughs> your Les Miserlution. Uh, what is your Les Mis New Year's resolution? Uh, first in the alphabet, drink. It's Pete Fenzel. Mine is to look down, look down, uh, to really focus on, you know, where I am, really live in the moment. You know, in all the ambiguous ways it's meant, they just like, care about the poor people around me. To, to look down and see my stomach and to try to work on getting that, you know, getting that down a little bit. To look down and, uh, and to notice if I'm wearing shoes that are matching. To look down in general uh, and all of the, the things that that means about paying attention to where you are in your circumstances, right? I think, I think that, because that, uh, throughout Les Mis, that phrase is used to refer both to the submissiveness, right, of the dock workers and to, like, the call to the authorities to recognize the plight of the oppressed. And also to that part where Jean Valjean then flicks his finger and hits Javert in the nose, uh, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. Um, so that, that I think I think it's it's sort of a general resolution, you know, it's sort of a behavioral thing, and also just a way of looking at the world. I used to duck my head down. I mean, I was going to build a castle on the cloud, but that doesn't seem feasible given my current financial <laughs> resources. So I'm just going to try to, to uh, you know to, to to live where it is, as it were. Um, oh, it would be nice to have that castle on a cloud. Get a big plasma screen on a cloud. Everything would be on a cloud. You get some nice uh, <laughs> delivered uh, roast beef sandwiches on a cloud. Oh, no, no, I was thinking more of like uh, building something in Minecraft because that would be a castle in the cloud. Huh? Get it? Uh, it lives on the oh. ah! wow. Yeah, that's, uh, the Minecraft people are going to be all up on that. They're going to buy that intellectual property in a heartbeat. That'll be all over the, uh, the interwebs. Interwebs. Just the interwebs. Just our own internal internet connections. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Mark Lee. My lame is resolution for 2013 <laughs> is to promote vocational skills training and a labor mobility. Right? Because <laughs> what is lame is about is it is uh, uh, one of the main parts about it is Fantine. She loses her job and then in in a in a sewing factory and immediately descends into cutting her hair for money and prostitution. Right? There should be a lot of different uh, paths. Uh, steps along uh, different alternative paths for someone in sort of that sort of situation to go on, aside from cutting hair and prostitution. Um, you know, in the United States, we have this idea tooth of... Tooth pulling. Uh, Don't uh, forget tooth pulling. It's tooth yeah. <laughs> I forgot about the tooth, the tooth pulling. We have this idea, the United States Department of Labor has this idea of the dislocated worker, someone who loses their job and is really in need of, of, of labor services, vocational training, you know, like enroll in a training program to learn new skills that you can, uh, you can apply to a different trade or enhance the skills that she already has. She has transferable skills, right? She's, she's, she's a seamstress. Uh, and, and that counts for a lot in a 19th century uh, industrial economy. Um, the other, the other part about it, uh, labor mobility, right? Like, you know, she loses her job in this one town in France, and um, 
and okay, so reputation may be sullied, right? But is it so sullied that you can't go over to the next town, which is close enough to you know be able to send money to Cosette, right? That labor mobility is important. She needs to be able to 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 go to where the labor demand is with her labor supply, because that should not be fixed in one location. This is really important labor market economics. We need to learn from Les Mis, and we need to carry into the year 2013. Yeah, this is really similar to what I've actually decided is actually my resolution, which is to change my name by a top hat and start a sweatshop. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jean Valjean enjoys a great deal of labor mobility throughout Limit Sarab, but it requires a certain initial investment. Uh, you know, he's, he changes jobs and, and, and identities and such several times. Itiner- right? so, well, yeah, bandit- banditry is always itinerant. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Except when it becomes fixed. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. It, it is- well, well, if you would like to hear more about stationary banditry, you can listen to the TFT podcast also on overthinkingit.com. Um, so, uh, all right, uh, I'll go. In honor of uh, Daniel Huddlestone, who plays, and I'm going to mangle the French pronunciation of this name, but is it Gavroche? The, uh, the adorable little long blonde-haired moppet um, who, is, you know, is, sorry? Street urchin, I think, is a technical term. Yeah, right. Uh, That's the British version. French ones are moppets. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does not have fingerless gloves. Street urchins have fingerless gloves. <laughs> Gavroche? Is that, is that how you say his name? Um, I, uh, yeah. I realized I just got a haircut recently, uh, and I realized it had been like almost four months since my last haircut. Uh, and I, you know, I was looking sort of like a like a shaggy mountain man. And in honor of the the long haired uh, street urchin moppet, glo- fingerless gloves or no, it's uh, to get regular haircuts is uh, is my resolution this year, and to always present a sort of trim and, and tidy appearance. Um, so it was it was that character, not Fontaine, who you weren't like, oh, that pixie cut looks great on Anne Hathaway. <laughs> I should really like make sure I keep it close cropped in in the current style and whatnot. That wasn't the that wasn't the provocation. No, no, no. I was uh, I was distracted by her her sobs of destitution and misery. <laughs> I, it is pretty funny that she's on the cover of what like Glamour magazine with her short hair, and it's like I'm having a great time. Right. <laughs> it's like the look on her face, <laughs> and it's because uh, they actually cut her hair on camera, right, for the scene. Yeah, it yeah. was she pulled a nap. Natalie Portman. No, Natalie Portman did that in V for Vendetta. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Not in Thor. There's no haircutting scene in <laughs> Thor. She just like goes to a barber shop and it's like, let me tell you about this guy I'm seeing. Uh huh. <laughs> <And then> like, <laughs> it's like sassy haircutter. That was on the that's on the the, the DVD features of Thor. <laughs> it's like the sassy barber shop scene. Uh- <laughs> so I. Uh- here we are uh, diving into the podcast. Listen, um, we're not going to we're not going to uh, put out the plea for the Amazon affiliate link anymore. But uh, I will this final time say thank you for everyone who did it. This was our best uh, our best year so far in terms of people. It's not exactly generosity. Well, it's generosity with your time is what it is because you know it didn't cost you any more to use the link, but you did take an extra step, and we at Overthinking It benefited from it. We thank you for that. And uh, we saw we we gave a couple weeks ago uh, some of the awesome things that you bought um, today. I was looking through the list. We see the list of what people buy because you know um, that's how they calculate our kickback, and so they you know account for all those things. We don't know who bought what. We don't n- know you. Nor would we disclose it if if that were the case. Right, we right, didn't right. Know. but uh, it's, <laughs> right, exactly. We're not. It's not that we are. Um, 
uh, right. It's not that we are uh, protecting your privacy. We actually have not. We're we're incapable of invading your privacy. Uh, <laughs> so I can just say that someone has bought a uh, an awesome faded Captain America logo T-shirt, uh, pre-distressed. Nice. Yeah, it was. Uh, I looked at it. It was pretty. Uh, it was a pretty handsome garment, and I thought I might. Uh, I might get that for myself. But someone, someone got that uh, for themselves, and we hope it was a, uh, a happy holiday season, uh, whatever holiday that awesome Captain America garment was for. Anyway, so uh, it's uh, we're very we're very grateful, and you know, given the given the the turnout and the large number of, of products that was bought, and the the great benefit uh, in terms of the. Uh, dollars and cents kickback to overthinking it. A lot of people must have done it. So thank you, overthinking it army. Whether you uh, comment on the show notes, whether you write or call in, uh, no matter what you do, um, uh, whether you are part of the silent majority of of overthinking it podcast listeners or the uh, the vocal minority, we're grateful to you for uh, taking one click out of your holidays for overthinking it. Moving on. Did, uh, did, any, did anyone get the Wii U? No Wii U, I'm afraid. Uh, it's, in, in, a final, in a final bit of irony, my family got me an Xbox 360. <laughs> yes, not even not even Pencil got the Wii U. No, 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 no. I'm excited, but it was yeah, it was definitely like ah. Oh, I guess no one no one is going down that road. Maybe some other time <laughs> down, down the old dusty trail. <laughs> Xbox 360 for Fenzel. Any any other uh, good uh, pop culture related holiday holiday gifts. You can write us in uh, an email at podcast at overthinking it dot com. We'd actually love to hear about that in the new year. Speaking of the new year, one more announcement before we dive in. On Saturday, January twenty sixth, um, in a place. Um, <laughs> On Saturday, January 26th, 2013, in New York City, we are hosting a party to commemorate the fifth anniversary of Overthinking It. On, uh, on January 22nd, 2008, Overthinking It went live with a handful of posts. And you can actually go back, you know, uh, overthinking.com slash 2008 slash 01 slash 22, right? The date backwards. Um, and uh, so this January uh, on the 22nd, it's our fifth anniversary. We've been operating this site for five years. Wow. Uh, that's astonishing. And so we're going to have a party and it's going to be in New York. Uh, where the greatest uh, concentration of overthinkers is. And, and uh, you're going to uh, see at least four, uh, we have solid commitments from at least four overthinkers, uh, including me, one Matthew Rather. <laughs> I am announcing on this podcast that I am flying <laughs> across the country. You're the, leaving the bleeding edge? I've, I'm going to go to the trailing edge. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, no, uh, go to New York, a, a wonderful city in its own right, if you like that sort of thing. And uh, teasing. Wonder, uh, wonderful cities, if you like wonderful cities, as opposed to, like, sp- sprawling abominations. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to, you know, 50 suburbs in search of an herb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. The, uh, the, the we'll party. So right now it's just to save the date. We'll update you with more details uh, as they become clear. Saturday, January 26th. Uh, in New York City, featuring um, 
many live overthinkers, including one who has flown all the way from Los Angeles just to be there. Uh, see you there, January 26th. All right, a little follow-up before we dive into the main, uh, the main the, uh, miserable topic of this miserable <laughs> podcast. Um, so, Pete, I saw The Hobbit uh, in 48 frames per second, and I think that, that you had not seen that, right? I actually did not know whether I saw it or not because I was so agog at it being in 3D IMAX that I didn't even check. But I think, I think you would have noticed. Okay, fair enough. It would because it would have it would have seemed and actually they are I think they did a uh, 48 version of the IMAX though I'm not sure I mean I'm not sure that's even possible but if if they did it would be the um, digitally projected IMAX the abomin the abomination IMAX abomin IMAX um, <laughs> that is the not the full you know, 70 millimeter film IMAX, but is the uh, Google fake IMAX, if you want to know what I'm talking about. Uh, but okay. because those are our digital projectors, you'd need those to do the, the 48 frames per second. But okay. uh, anyway, so the, one of the, one of the effects of this was to the, it's the, 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 um, the effect has been described as being kind of like video or like a soap opera, which I mean, which means like video with, you know, uh, a lot sharper outlines, a lot sort of uh, harsher uh, lighting conditions. And for me, it seemed a lot more sort of massy, right? The um, the like the the. Uh, like like uh, like a like a Catholic mass or no, like no, 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 no. like, like weights le- weighty not but not weighty metaphorically weighty in terms of subject matter the, things seemed more massy the, uh, they seemed more solid the images oh. in the 3D sort of by having those really sharply defined edges and having that kind of like harsh video style light and like it 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 gave it a, the whole thing a kind of thingness a kind of like massiness or a kind of solidity um, that I thought seemed to comport with what you were um, talking about with this sort of food, you know, with the emphasis on, on the corporeal, right. And sort of like dangling Mm. bodies over um, dangling bodies over, you know, high precipices or the, the focus on food um, and, and things like this. So that, that it kind of added to this, it was kind of all of a piece, but I also noticed, and you had kind of set my table, uh, cognitively, you know what I mean? Conceptually, mm-hmm. Pete, like with, with, by kind of setting an agenda in terms of listening to your podcast and uh, reading your article about it on overthinking it. Um, but it, it struck me that for a movie that was kind of about, it was about massiness and about sort of, uh, you know, feeding the body and the body in home and the body being expelled mm-hmm. from home and like uh, dwarves being sort of short and fat, like uh, trolls, um, like the rock monsters who had who had a fight which was awesome by the way i know it's a little silly but like i i clapped with glee like a tiny child when the (laughs) when the rock monsters had their fight there were a couple of of, you know uh good sequences in this that were just like i was like man this is a blast uh like man this is a fun ride but okay so here's here's the point i wanted to make for uh for a movie that was so concentrated on the um solidity of things it it struck me h- how many times the action took place or even like the high precipice was within a hollowed out 
object, hollowed out earth, like a hollowed out mm. mountain or a mine or a cave huh. or a negative like a, space. Ne- right. Like ne- a narrow passageway or like the hobbit houses that are dug into, you know what I mean? That are dug into hills so that for a movie that's about food, you know, that's about like the corporeality of the body dangling from a precipice, right? That's about these sort of forces uh, acting on us. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of like architecture, right? Or there was a lot of, you know, clearly a lot of action in terms of like excavation and, you know, uh, erecting these, like the, the goblin scaffolding, for example. Right, right, right. Like standing on the front of that. I think when, even when they're at the, the place in Rivendell where they're able to read the runes on the map and Elrond is standing right out on that giant empty precipice. Yeah. On top of everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like all the dwarves are very solid and they're all standing there, but everything else is just open and empty. That's an interesting tension. That's and, an interesting And sort of uh, yawning well, even, even at that thing, like yawning behind them, that was like a cave, right? Like the mm-hmm. wasn't it in that in that scene in Rivendell and like the cave opened yeah. onto this yep. it opened onto this majestic view of a of a lake or something like of a precipice yeah. and all of Rivendell or It was like an you. eagle airy, yeah, in the side of a cliff one of the cave that you could get to. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Anyway, so it, I, I mean, I don't know. It struck me. I, I like I say, I was probably primed to think about it in certain terms, uh, you know, because you had set the cognitive agenda for me. But it's, yeah. you know, I don't know. There was, there was on the podcast. There was some, uh, uh, there was some lack of enthusiasm about see, seeing the movie, and I think people should go see it because I had a blast watching this movie. Yeah, no, I, I definitely my enthusiasm for seeing it was a lot less before I saw it than after. Afterwards, I was like, "Oh, that was great! Yeah, I like that. That was fun. Yeah, definitely." Uh, and I think that that what you, one of the things that you bring up, at least from my perspective, and again, I did sort of set the agenda a little bit, is so much of the movie is about these juxtapositions that provoke sense like sensual and sensory reactions in themselves just by the things that are being shown to you and demonstrated to you and it's not really about kind of figuring out the lore and story and and all that other stuff it's it's really a very accessible movie in that regard but not a movie that lacks complexity if you're looking for it Uh, obviously maybe the surface complexity isn't quite there as much but there's definitely complexity in the way that images and objects and characters are sort of related to each other and, and kind of echo each other and, and stuff like that. So I definitely, it's, it definitely is something that will, you, it will affect you emotionally to some degree or another. Though not like, not like you know, making you weep like Les Rob necessarily um, or making you wretch like Les Rob or making you cheer like Les Rob or all the other things that the people standing outside of Broadway theaters say about the show that they just saw. Sure. I laughed, I cried, I wretched. I rolled my eyes. Yeah, More exactly. on that later. <laughs> um, Matt, one, one last uh, question on this 48 FPS thing. I, I wanted to get, want you to get down to brass tacks. Is 48 FPS like the next big uh, technological revolution in film, or is it a passing fad? No, it's. No, I don't think it's a passing thing. I mean, I don't think any of these things are passing things. Like once you sort of, you can't unring that bell. You know, um, <laughs> you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? Uh, the the whatever whatever metaphor you want to use, it's, it seems to me that like now this is a, a paintbrush that's available to the artists who make films. You know, and I, I think people are going to want to make films in different ways for different reasons. And and I sort of I look forward excitedly to a time when, um, you know, when you can actually kind of intentionally select among media. Uh, 2D versus 3D, um, 24 versus 48 frames per second, digital versus uh, originated on film, right? Like, um, 
I look forward to a time when you can you can sort of make these choices to suit artistically uh, the 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 film you're trying to make. I mean, the the it's not just the story you're trying to tell; it's the whole artistic project of the you know of the whole of the whole film. Um, so it's not. I I I think that like let's not let's not jump on the bandwagon i either way let's not jump on the bandwagon of haters let's not jump on the bandwagon of uh of you know to what the james cameron side of like you know this is the only way anyone is going to make movies from here on out i'll say that for me it made the 3d a little easier to watch you know as someone who who occasionally has uh you know you get kind of fatigued watching 3d or you get you get dizzy um there were one or two, you know, there were one or two fast camera pans or, or things like this that were a little, that were a little disorienting or a little like, uh, nauseating just a little, a little tiny bit. Um, but I was, I mean, I was struck largely by the, the, the beauty of the, the beauty of the images. It only looks like a, it only looks like a, a soap opera. You only get that sort of look that you associate with video or that I associate with like LCD flat panel TVs that have a, a really fast refresh rate. Um, you only get that in like shots, really like quickly moving shots. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I think that might be an unsatisfactory answer to you, Mark, but it's not, you know, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely an effect and actually it, it really, it brought, it gave the, the, um, the CG characters a level of reality or of kind of solidity, and it it gave the the live actor characters a level of unreality or a level of kind of strangeness that actually sort of put them all on the same plane. You know mm. that it was they they seemed to be. Uh, I I had a. Uh, I had a teacher in graduate school who who defined style, theatrical or filmic style, as a consistent distance from reality. And I mean, like, there are a lot of terms in there that need to be defined, but the the key is consistent, right? right. Um, the the key is the consistency of the 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 conception of the different elements uh, in the work. And so the the forty eight FPS seemed to me to kind of put everyone at the same distance from reality or from what we might we might call reality and whether that's with reference to the reality of other films shot on film at 24 or like the reality that we see around us you know whatever let's not go down that rabbit hole because it's turtles all the way down but the, the it's a vast negative space full of scones and <laughs> and, and the buckets of beer that are being drunk by bearded men that are <laughs> dwelling in those yeah i think maybe we took a wrong turn at albuquerque to get to that point yeah i gotta say i love uh listening to people talk about 40 fps and reading people describe 48 fps uh, me myself having not seen it because i think this is like one of the hardest things to describe uh in non-visual terms right uh, like just the, the impression that i get is that this is just sort of the sort of thing that you have to just see and process with your own brain and your own uh, cones and your eyes yeah you um, do I and mean, that reading just... it is just like it, it is this interesting mental intellectual exercise of describing things in words which really cannot fully be described in words sure 
I, I mean, if you're a better, I'm a terrible artist, a terrible drawer, you know, I can't paint for or sketch or anything. So I'm, you know, I'm the wrong guy to ask about visual art. But like, I, you know, I have fiddled uh, with the controls in Photoshop. So I, I you know, I can tell you that like, <laughs> it's brighter, it's more contrasty, the, the edges are sharper. Um, yeah, but the 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 um the sort of psychological effect of kind of 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 leveling out the the reality of the live action versus CG characters was was something I noticed about it. Cool. Excellent. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on up to the east side. <laughs> or or the um or the what the like the 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 second Arundhati Mall. <laughs> did, you just, did, you just, did you just say east side in french <laughs> i don't think that was east side in french because i don't know, how would you say that i was just i was just referring, in so far as the east side is a neighborhood in an urban place either new york or otherwise so is like any arundis mall in paris a neighborhood of that city in paris Ah, uh, okay okay well i'm now taking the lyrics to the jeffersons and going to google translate so let's uh <laughs> <laughs> we've all seen uh we've all seen Les Miserables. I I uh, I kind of don't want to uh I, I kind of don't know how to start here. Uh c- can we agree that performance wise and Anne Hathaway like runs away with it very early in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the extent that she overpowers like all the other performances and it makes everyone else look bad. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I say everyone else, not just Russell Crowe, who uh, is like clearly not like the vocal talent required for that role, but everybody else, including Hugh Jackman. I mean, that's I, I mean, it's tricky. I feel like there's a couple of big like schisms, it's like big cracks that are running through Les Miserables, and and one of them is the big is the differentiation between on one hand. Uh, it's sort of like multiple continua. Like, are you a are you a movie star or not? And I don't mean that in terms of whether you are famous, but whether you are able to sort of command the screen in a way that a real movie star can command the screen. And the other one is, can you sing like a professional musical theater singer, right? And so Anne Hathaway is the only person who kind of nails both of those things. Yeah. But I mean, I think that uh, oh gosh, I'm looking up their names now. Eddie Redmayne did a pretty good job singing. I thought Aaron. I mean, yeah, well, he he and Aaron Tevitt, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Is is a professional mu- music? Those theater. being what uh, Marion and uh, who's the other one? Marius, not Mar- and, and, Marius and Angelus. I think it sounds. Pre- I'm not sure how yeah, it's pronounced. No, Ma- exactly. uh, Marion is oh. a librarian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, but it's like, and I mean, Helena Bottom Carter was also decent. But that the way that that those whole sections of the show were interpreted was a little bit interesting. But we can get to that a little bit later. So, so Mark, you were just saying that you thought the the performances in general. Every performance lacked what either a capacity for singing or a capacity for interest. Yeah, and, and just uh, just to sort of frame ourselves in, in our conversation about this, it sounds like we're just getting our review-ish uh, thoughts about the experience of the movie out now, and then we'll sort of go and. That's never places, the right? most interesting thing about talking about a movie. I find is whether it's good or not. Right? It's like, man. I mean, we can talk about that until we uh, turn blue in the face. Right. I mean, okay. So, uh, I I really dislike the movie. I did not have a good time watching it. I thought it was. Uh, uh, like a missed opportunity on so many different levels. Um, and, but, but regarding specifically what you talked about, uh, you know, not being able to, or, or Anne Hathaway being able to command the screen presence and the musical presence mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, she, okay, so a lot of this is, is coming from the directorial decision 
to film so many of the musical numbers in extreme close-ups. Yes. Where, like, at that point, all you have is the music, the singing, and the actor's face as they're emoting. That's and right. And Hathaway owned all of that. You were just yeah. you, you were you were eating. You weren't wondering about what the other things are, you know, that the camera could be showing at that time. You were just all eyes and all ears on in Hathaway. Everything, almost everything else in the movie as you are just like, you know, being bludgeoned in the face by you <laughs> yes. know, by the live yes. <laughs> by the live singing and the extreme close-ups, you're it's just not satisfying. It's not satisfying for the ear, it's not satisfying for the eye. See, this is where I think this is funny because the way that you describe it, bludgeoning you in the face, this is, uh, I guess there's no accounting for taste, right? Like, you don't like getting bludgeoned in the face. I, <laughs> I tend to find it kind of enjoyable. Some people, like, yeah, some people pay good money for that, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, thank you, sir. May I have another after watching Crank 2? You know, it's like sometimes you just need, you know, just, sometimes you just need that Ghost Rider to kick that spirit of vengeance into gear and get things going, uh, to smack you upside the head, as it were. Um, but yeah, but I, I mean, I guess, I mean, that's a really important point is that the movie, because I mean, I, again, I, I saw it with my mom, I, right? I saw it with my mom the day after Christmas. Uh, so the setting in which I saw it was very different, but I, I felt like they could have done this movie in a very predictable way that would have been very straight down the middle and might have still had one good number and been generally mediocre. But the way that they filmed everybody singing, right, you know, film them singing, film them really close up and also surround them with, I, I almost compared it, not I almost, I did compare it a little bit to Roman Polanski's Macbeth, if you've seen that one. Obviously, they have different aesthetic values. But that's the one where, like, they, they have a scene on a beach, and they're actually, like, riding on a rainy, miserable beach on horses, right? And they get off, and they're soaking wet, and everything's really grimy and dingy. And it's like you enter the trouble of trying to make a reality that looks like the reality of Macbeth, at least as far as your, your filmic vision would make it look. And there's a certain... Uh, there's a certain gap between the way that you've portrayed the world and the text that you're communicating because the text is built around and built uh, within a bunch of expected theatrical conventions. So there's going to be seams. There's going to be cracks, right? And I saw that they made some – again, you could see this as a, as a bad thing, but I thought at the very least it was an interesting and a strong choice to really kind of pull in and and expose – you know the musicalness of the of the text that everybody is saying, and just sort of lay it bare for everybody. I mean, Matt. I mean, you you have experience in both musical theater and in film. Did you notice anything about that kind of division, or about do you know, does what I'm talking about make sense, or am I just should I be taken out to the should I be taken out to the barricades and shot, or uh, I guess they don't take people out to the barricades. No, you, you go climb, out to the barricades. You climb up on the barricades and you you get shot heroically. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I don't want to be a hero. Um, I, I didn't come here to to make friends. I came here to win. <laughs> I I, uh, yeah, I mean, I. Gosh, I mean, it's so interesting. It reminds me, by the way, like this is the same thing that the director did in King's Speech, right? Which, if you recall, was shot in a lot of close-ups. Um, those were like close-ups. Yeah, World War Two period pieces are often shot in extreme close-up, right? Like especially the older ones. Because you can't, because you don't have the money to do the the huge uh, to do the huge landscapes right behind. Oh, is that what you do? do Because it's a matte painting behind them, and you don't want anyone to see it. (laughs) You can, (laughs) yeah, you can get away with little patches of matte painting, but the um, yeah, but the whole thing, uh, the whole thing would give the game away. Here, I mean, 
you know, I don't know. And I, I sort of wondered to myself watching this movie if, if something like that were going on here as well, because I thought the, like, the 3D environments were bad, right? We're like, a, we're like an Air Force One level of bad. Uh, <laughs> really? hold, hold on a second. Re- rewind. Back the truck up here. Like, like Air Force One meaning like the interior of the, of, of the plane? That somehow that was not convincing to you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. I, you know what? I don't even want to talk about this. I just want to say <laughs> go back and watch – the plane, the plane crash in on uh, in Air Force One, the landing, you know the. the oh, okay. well, that's an exterior thing. That's a bit. Uh, uh, well, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about like the giant ship that has all the ropes attached to it. Yeah, or the the the, the, yeah. the like the the shots, you know, kind of zooming through the streets or like zooming down from above. On, I, I mean, they they were so. It was like. It was not even. Uh, it was not even a vice city. It was like a, a, a Liberty City level of you know. So 3D. it's like it's like a it's like a Babylon Five solution to a Victor Hugo problem. <laughs> <laughs> Zap. <laughs> Zap. So, so did that take you out of it, or? Well, no. I mean, I I wondered at the time if staying in really tight was uh, you know was part of the um, was part of the strategy for like coping with subpar uh subpar computer graphics but right but like look. this wasn't the movie where they remade you know 19th century paris like building for building you know board for board with like the crazy supercomputers over at cray yeah in the ninth or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um yeah but like so when you're watching a play like the thing you can't do is go in close you know <laughs> and so i mean it struck me yeah it's definitely i mean a strong choice by which by which i take you to mean like a uh a, 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 a very deliberate and a, a um, we're going to sort of live or die by this, right? Right. Yeah, I guess. Well, well, strong choice when I say that is is kind of a. Uh, I guess it's it's used a lot in improv right. because making yeah, a wrong acting, choice. Right? Yeah, or in acting in general, it's used a lot in acting in general, right? It's, and we sort of know what it feels like to make a strong choice. Uh, that feeling that that a, that a decision has been made, that there somebody is trying to do something, and that 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 act in of itself is somewhat engaging. Right, because it's like, oh, oh, someone is doing something. Okay, I should care what's happening. You know, like it is hard to explain, but yeah, deliberateness, I guess, is part of it. But you can make a strong choice that's fast. Um, it's a weak choice is is like, what's a good example of a, of like a weak choice? Just like having like a, a standard car chase from a standard angle, even if it's awesome. I don't know. It's tough to say. Yeah, um, but it, I mean, it was. It, that's the thing that you can't do, right? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the thing that you can't do in the theater. I mean, there are means of of directing people's attention in the theater, and they have to do with, you know, how you set up the stage and where you have people stand on it, and and then the use of lighting and and you know things like this. But um, you can't you can't sort of get get close to someone. So it is. I mean, it is the thing that uh, it is the thing. Well, you can do it. You can do like a cabaret performance. Right, you could have like a thousand dollar a plate, you know, cabaret performance where you know uh, Bernadette Peters comes out and sings a couple songs, right? And then you're like right there and you can see her. I mean, you can't sit like six inches away from her face because they get a restraining order, but you can they, you can frame it. I mean, that's interesting because this isn't the kind of show that you would do that with, though, right? Like this isn't like sort of an evening with Les Mis where everybody sort of crowds in and you can be in a black box or something and people are going to sing these yeah. songs because they're so huge and they're going to so yeah, yeah they're going to kind of talk sing them right and like do little patter yeah. about you know 
you know? Yeah, yeah, all those sort of semi-recitative sections yeah. and all that. It is interesting that it's that it's like, well, what if they did? What's a good example of a show that would work that way, uh, or that is sort of more suited to working? I mean, like Company, right? Like Company, company yeah, you, you can watch on TV. Sort of, yeah. or or like Godspell is the one that comes to mind, right? Because it has. And I think. That. That's- yeah, yeah. Well, the Neil Patrick Harris company is, I think, finally coming out on DVD, uh, the one that they did for, for the uh, Fathom events or what have you um, that they broadcast in movie theaters. So, so you, and I think they probably do that there with Steve, Stephen Colbert is in it, too, um, and all that nonsense. You could probably see a close-up. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the thing that struck you, was that, that this is a different way of experiencing a kind of theatrical production. Right, it's sort of like, and the sort of the use of, like, of what use are the movies, right, to this text. You know, yeah. and it like I think the uses is uh, the uses in in going in close, but that's you know not every actor can withstand that that kind of um, that so, kind of like so yeah yeah so like is is standing six inches away from Hugh Jackman's face as he like belts out uh, you know like, bring me home is that like is that like the Michael Bay of musical theater <laughs> is that like the is that like the Sheila Booth running from four stories of clanking metal that's like bearing down on him is this a way of kind of translating uh, the the excess of our contemporary you know punching in the face you know filmic conventions into the an equivalent sort of translating it across media because nobody would do Les Mis from six inches away right like that would be a performance art piece right like um <laughs> Like, like you just go into a room and there's someone standing there and you have to stand in a, in a line like six inches away from their face. Right. And they go like, on my own. You know, it's like right in your grill. Right. It's like uh, lift that nose up and just holler out stars right into their right into their into their dome. Right well, I mean, there. Right. Better, better yet would be like there out in the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Pull them in. Pull them in. Yeah, that, I mean that would be pretty. Uh, and if they fall like Lucifer fell, <laughs> ah! and then everybody jumps. Oh, yeah, this is great! Wow, yeah. you, you know. <laughs> we, I, mean, I think I think Cal Arts has a scholarship for you if you want to actually <laughs> produce this. Okay, I, I want to back the truck up again. I know I invoked this earlier for Air Force One, but I'm going to do it again for Les Mis. Okay. Um, the the bring him home sequence, right? With that Pete that you mentioned, with like extreme close up of Hugh Jackman belting. Yeah, right. Yeah. I want to talk about why that scene didn't work, and 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 see if that, that see if that serves as a microcosm for my broader problems with the movie, and see if you guys have a different take on it. Um, first, let's start with Hugh Jackman's performance. Um, I tweeted this earlier. I don't know if any of you guys, uh, guys saw this, but um, my general dissatisfaction with Hugh Jackman's performance comes like both from just sort of you know taking it in on its own and, and finding it be excessively grating and too warbly in the vibrato. Um, so there's that, but also my dissatisfaction comes from uh, knowing what uh, the what's Colm Wilkinson, the the original guy who who performed uh, the Jean Valjean character, knowing what he can do with that part and how he can make it sound or how beautiful he can it's probably do that. Not the original guy, but yeah, yeah. well, yeah. original Broadway or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's 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 right. where the original my- the original guy was French. And actually, yeah, exactly. So when after we saw this, Fiona and I uh, googled a lot of French Les Misérables lyrics. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. With translations, which is an interesting exercise because the um, you know, uh, like I dreamed a dream, for example, it's very different. Well, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But anyway, yeah, let, yeah, yeah, let me go, let me go back to my problems with, with the bring him home scene. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the you're you're supposed to uh, understand uh, how Jean Valjean sees Marius and gets this emotional connection to him and like pleads to God to bring him home. Right. The way that it was paced and shot in the movie um, utterly failed for me to to make that emotional connection and to connect those dots. It's like, uh, you know, all these random things happen at the barricade. Like Jean Valjean shows up in a uniform and then he uh, uh, lets uh, lets uh, Javert go. And then like he like looks at um, at Marius like from the second floor down to the ground while watches him do stuff. And then he's like, oh, my God. Bring him home! Bring him home! Um, the, the the construction of all that, like the, the execution and the timing of all that, um, I, I thought was just not making the connection between the audience and what what's happening mm-hmm. on the screen. And uh, that I think is the primary failure of of the movie. Is like is the arrangement of the action on screen and the timing and the pacing of all of it. Um, it it, it, it felt a bit like a forced march and like or like checking off the boxes of what um, was supposed to be in in the musical and didn't feel like a story that was you know give, giving me a path to connecting to the characters and giving me tension and wanting me to care about them. Yeah. I mean, I think my my own reaction. I, I also have a problem with with that area. And again, I'm not particular. I don't particularly care whether it's necessarily good or bad. But I think there's something to what you're saying here. Um, lame is. This was the first time I'd seen it, right? So I'm not hugely familiar with it, and I'm sure people who've worked on the show have a more intimate familiarity with it. Right. But it and seems just, to me... I, like, yeah. I haven't seen the stage show either. I'm very familiar with the music, but not the stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the show has a big modulation in it, like a modulation of tone and a modulation of stakes and of theme, right? Because the story of adult Cosette and Marius is... This, it all feels uh, like it's a very, very different sort of thing is at stake than the rest of the story about Jean Valjean and his struggle was with the law and you know like it's it's maybe it's a product of the times to an extent but you know I sort of I sort of felt like the glee set shows up about halfway through this movie and I don't think that this is necessarily the fault of the production but it's like, like glee set as in like the TV show glee yeah as in like oh here come the pretty younger people who are going <laughs> to sing well right which is not what I came to this movie to watch I came here to watch like middle-aged people holler at the darkness <laughs> right yeah, like from like really close up well because it's like you know oh Think of the opening scene of the movie, right? And this is the thing that keeps sticking with me. Hugh Jackman really pulling on that rope to pull that ship in. Uh, If you see this in a stage production, it's not going to be nearly as aggressive, right, in terms of just its brute physicality and the sense of suffering that he's undergoing and this stuff that's being shown to you. Um, it would be more representational, or it would be more presentational in the theater a little bit, right? Like it would, it would not necessarily be as as sweaty and grimy, right? There would be more that sort of this is a story that happened in the past. It would feel a little more, a little bit more like a legend because they wouldn't be able to show you the whole thing. And then when you move into the adult Cosette section. And you have the time skip. Oh, these are people who are alive right now, and this is their current experience. There's kind of a raising of the stakes because you move kind of from the pseudo-mythological into the personal, which then sort of becomes the personally mythological. But in the movie, you already start at this really high place, and it feels like this story of this love triangle, it just doesn't matter. Right? Like, I, don't, I don't get the sense that it matters who Marius ends up dating. 
right? I, I don't get the sense that Eponine, right? Like Eponine is is freaking gorgeous, right? And is like doesn't really seem to be all that unhappy. She gets to hang out with Sasha Baron Cohen and Helen Bonham Carter, right? Like, and she has her hair teased a little bit, but other than that, she's not really suffering. Um, and it's like, oh, she can't, <laughs> you know, like it's like, oh, like she can't ask out her gay boyfriends, you know, like oh no. <laughs> You know, like, oh, oh, no, oh, darn, right? It's like, <laughs> like the song, I mean, I understand why so many teenage girls sing it. Like, going back to when I heard these songs originally, which was in the sort of high school musical review setting, right, where everybody picks a song that they want to sing, and some girls want to sing On My Own, and some want to sing I Dreamed a Dream, and some sing, you know, like uh, like something from Kiss of the Spider Woman or whatever, Um and some sing like uh, "Children Will Listen" from "Into the Woods" and all that nonsense. Um, I I really thought that "On My Own" was like a higher stake song than "I Dreamed a Dream," and I think that's because the teenage girls who were singing it really understood what the song was about much more than they understood what "I Dreamed a Dream" was about. And in the movie, I felt like it was totally reversed. Yeah. And maybe it's like that in the show too. Oh, that's we're just that's like very yeah. That's very interesting to me because like you. People experience things like this through, and maybe not Les Mis, I, I'm not sure whether the rights are available, but like musical theater generally, like first through, you know, their high school's production of these things, right? Yeah. Like yeah before exactly. anything else, that's, you know, you see one every spring, uh, you know, like a spring musical, right? And like, that's, that's very, you know, that's very interesting that our, our conception of these songs is shaped by the 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 limitations of the performers that we see do them right 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 so it's really hard to find like if there are really great songs that are sung by old people in broadway shows they aren't they, they may not necessarily be people's favorites right i'm trying to think of a good example um, yeah i mean a lot of sondheim actually like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. finishing the hat for example, right? Like yeah, yeah. you don't, you know, I, I don't know, some like prodigious young 16 year old might give it a try because it's, you know, difficult vocally, but you, you sort of don't get that, right? Like, um, or I, I guess being alive, right, is another good, is another good yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one affected me much more now than it did when I saw it in high school. Yeah, exactly. Right. You yeah. have to kind of, yeah, 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 you have to kind of be in that, that state. You have mm-hmm. to sort of have experienced that. But yeah, but I mean, it's like, does Eponine ever express to Marius that she's attracted to him? And in the way that the movie communicates it, it's like, they don't even, she never even really tries. And his lack of interest in her seems entirely biological, right? Like, it's like, there's, there's no sense of class in that relationship. She, he, like, really loves her. He just, like, isn't in love with her because he likes to hang out with his bros, you know? Like, um, and his love for Cosette is contrived but i think that's just something that happens in romances right it's like oh they're in love they, they don't add, tell you like okay so pyramus and thisbe you know did they do they really understand each other <laughs> right like like <laughs> do they really feel that is their connection something that could endure through like a mortgage <laughs> you know like uh <laughs> but i mean there yeah. could be i mean there could be like um you know, just a whole play that we don't see that's like Pyramus and Thisbe's Infinite Playlist or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Right? Yes. Where you get the whole detail, you get the whole detail of like how they spent that one lost weekend together. You know what I mean? Like smoking weed and like, you know, listening to songs on one another's iPods. I mean, to be fair, I, I remember what it was like to be a teenager and it sure felt like that sometimes. But, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't kill me. Right. 
sure. and it kills her, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. Oh, by the way, spoilers for Les Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> if you're like, oh man, I'm watching this movie for the plot, <laughs> you're a little late. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's France. It becomes France. Yeah, like spoiler, France exists, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, but it's like you know, it kills her, right? And it's like. I mean, I have issue with that in general. Like, I have issue, not issue with it, because I don't think, I'm not mad about it, but, like, I feel like it's the responsibility of contemporary artists to recognize how it's pretty weird that people die for really stupid reasons in plays. Um, Chief among them being shame, right? Or, like, disappointment. (laughs) Because, as we all, I mean, hopefully, maybe it's some product of the times and the culture, but, like, you know, point to me somebody who doesn't live with shame or disappointment, right? Like, at all. Right. There's no massive shame or disappointment or no thing that happens um, um, made them um, like wanted to die. Pete, right? Yeah. Someone who lives without shame or disappointment? Yeah. Honey boo boo. <laughs> oh, no. Done and done. <laughs> Honey boo boo, she is really talented, I gotta say. She I do I mean I don't watch her show, but I've seen her in a couple of YouTube clips and she seems to really command the screen. Which and it seems like such a damn shame that <laughs> what's happening to her is happening to her. And I really hope that she becomes an adult who uses her talents to kind of tell her story and get out there. But we'll see what happens. And she doesn't end up in like a meth park. That is even a thing. I don't think it's a thing. Like, bear, but like bears and geysers and meth. It's just like honey boo boo, like running through the forest okay. doing meth, um, <laughs> bopping them on the head. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Little honey boo boo running through the forest, <laughs> doing getting crystal meth and bopping them on the head. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just like I guess maybe this is just the ultimate in me being like jaded. But it's like who cares about love? There's a war on, well, right? Like. <laughs> Right, that's, you know, I mean, and that's that's that kind of like you sort of have to you have to kind of accept that pre-modern storytelling sensibility, right? Like it seems it seems to me that there are like several levels of anachronism, right? That between us and the characters kind of doing what they're doing in the story, there are like several uh, layers of anachronism that we have to peel back in order to kind of get at anything recognizably human. Uh, mm-hmm. Right in them, and like one one is is like French class systems at the time, right? Like, uh, is the you know the idea of um, the idea of like lower you know lower class people? It's not really engaged in the movie uh, at all in a meaningful way. I think, which is it's just really important to the story. I mean, is it really engaged in the musical too? Right, it's, is the question. It's more it's, like um, it's more like criminals. Like you're on the right or wrong side of the, you're on the right or the wrong side of the law. But like, you know, um, it's but, a cop solution to to the wire problem. Is what it is. <laughs> but it's a lot like that scene. I mean, this is a big uh, transgressor in that American Splendor, Revenge of the Nerds, wonderful, you know, dis- destruction. Like when American Splendor just destroys Revenge of the Nerds, right? Where um, where they're talking about how all the nerds are going to go get married and have jobs as software engineers, and like they're only really temporarily unpopular. They're actually going to be very successful and accepted in just a matter of a couple of years. Unless Whereas, like, right, like uh, unless they're caught for their you know massive sex crimes, 
Yeah, exactly. Well, they were legal in the 80s, right? She's uh, Louise. That's awful. Um, but at any rate, um, you know, Marius is like a prime example of that in Les Miserables, where he's like, he's out there on the front lines, on the barricades, fighting for the little guy, and when that doesn't work out, he goes back to his dad's house, right? Like, his dad's <laughs> mansion, his dad's, like, villa estate craziness, and, you know, is able to provide the girl of his dreams with the high-class upbringing and, and you know, uh, all the benefits of his privilege and his money and all that other stuff, and and it's basically seen as kind of a good thing. And he looks back at his time in the revolution and been like, what the heck was I doing? Right? Like, what were they all doing? And now everybody's dead and it sucks. Spoilers for Les Miserables. Spoilers a lot. Get shot. But yeah, but it's like the yeah, revolution. All, all my friends, my friends don't ask me what your sacrifice was for. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, he doesn't even want to. He doesn't even want to be faced with that question because right. it's such an awkward question. Um, but I mean, it's. I mean, the Jean Valjean character is kind of has a much more mature relationship with the class struggle in France than any of the younger characters do because he's obviously experienced it, right? And he's been there, and he under you know he's he's he's, he's also involved in it in a way. He sort of understands the weight and difficulty of of the system because um, he's he's fought in it, fought against it. Um, and he comes out of it like a little bit of a revolutionary, but not really at all. You know, like he's willing to stand with the people because he cares about them. And this is the thing, I think, Mark, that, that you, when you're talking about it wasn't plausible for Hugh Jackman to love Marius enough to want to like want him to be safe. Or yeah, to- essentially, yeah. Like it makes sense for Hugh Jackman to pull a kid through the sewers because he does that in like every movie. Or the <laughs> right, where it's like, I'm going to save the world because I can. Right. And it's like, I'm going to take this guy and jump on and grab a helicopter by the bottom and save this guy's life. Which no real person would do, but Hugh Jackman does in movies because he's an action hero. Um, but it's like the reason that Jean Valjean feels so strongly for Marius is because of his love for Cosette, which is this very this thing that really changes him. Uh, and, and I mean, I think this is in the book and in the musical. Uh, you know, he's an ex-con. Right, he's an ex-con. He's been really bitter, and he's sort of a, a born-again Christian who like found Jesus after he got out of prison, right? And he's like been kicked around, and he's generally been very distant and and strong, and you know he runs a sweatshop and fulfills his duties, but he's not really attached to anybody. And then he meets this girl, and it's like a, a you know it's like a buddy film or something where it's like a guy and and the girl like softens his heart, right? And he like he cares about her and he wants her to be happy. And he cares about her more than he cares about anything else. And I don't think that you really see that transformation in this production. No. Part of it is I think that the Jean Valjean who shows up at the factory floor when Fantine is being mocked is already kind of too nice of a guy. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Like, he's already a good guy. And maybe it's, it, it, I feel like in that scene, if I were to, I mean, again, this is having only seen it once, if I were to go back and do it again, I would have him be more callous at that point. And thus he would feel more credible guilt yeah. at fucking circumstances. Like, and not just, because it's like, you can't blame him for walking away. Right? Like, he had no idea that something of that problem was happening, like, of those stakes was happening if you look at what saw it, what was it's, going it's on. hard to have two come to Jesus moments. Two, like, or I don't know, choose your metaphor, Saul on the road to Damascus moments. It's hard to have two of those for a character in the same movie. The first one, you know, his literal come to Jesus moment was so powerful and so all consuming that, like, you know, in my mind, it's like, yeah, he's good. He's he's on the right path. They're a tired movie. just about that one story. Yeah. Totally. They're from like the 1910s. But yeah, there's entire (laughs) movies about it or plays or whatever, the 20s or 30s. Um, but yeah, but it's like, but it's also an intermission in the play, 
right, which is the other thing the movie doesn't have and could really use, is that there's a big intermission when you make that transition from the Jean Valjean kind of historical arc story to the, like, Cosette Marius love story. They divide it in half and you have ten minutes to go to the bathroom, which you might need if you <laughs> ate a lot of bad stuff, but you probably could use part of that to, like, check your email or something. Um, but it creates more of an obvious break, right? And I think that, that Jean Valjean, the, I mean, I was reading an interview with, with Hugh Jackman talking about it where, you know, the problem with playing Jean Valjean is he comes off as such a saint. He's such a wonderful human being. And that isn't particularly interesting from a theatrical standpoint. So, you know, how do you make him compelling? How do you make his journey after the first part of it interesting? Um, and, I, and one of the, the answers is you have to make his relationship with Cosette mean something. And adult Cosette kind of stinks. Like, she doesn't really do anything. Um, she certainly... She's certainly unacceptable from a contemporary feminist standpoint as a character, yeah. right? She just, like, goes from this little girl who's, like, plucky underdog who's being abused and, and goes out in the woods by herself to get water and meets this strange man. And then it's like, and then I grew up and fall in love. They did nothing else ever, ever, ever. You know, like, and I, I was entirely passive for the rest of my existence. Um, and that was what that was okay because that's the way I'm supposed to be. And it's just – she's a very unpalatable character. If you were to somehow – redo it like if you wanted to kind of update Les Miserables the musical which is the stupidest idea ever but if you wanted to do it you'd have to do something with adult cassette like give her an extra well number. you would put her on the barricade too is what you would do we might make- Epodine goes to the goes to the barricade and what well, did yeah. she get for her bravery she gets shot yeah and I mean I guess that thing is that that would like ruin it Right, like that would like totally cheapen it because part one of the one of the because Eponine's an important character in, in the second part of the musical, um, and part of it is that when when Cosette was little, Eponine is the rich kid who gets treated nice, and she's the poor kid who gets abused, and then when they grow up, they switch places, and Cosette is the rich kid who gets treated nice, and Eponine is the kid who gets abused, and Eponine is sort of there's that complexity to their relationship and that irony to where Eponine finds herself looking at Cosette. Um, that that like is is kind of compelling from a dramatic standpoint, but they don't really play it up because it makes Cosette into a bad guy, um, and and I don't have a problem with that. I'm fine with Cosette being a bad guy, uh, but it, it sets up a whole bunch of other challenges in, in terms of rationalizing everything else that happens. So, yeah, I got really excited. Man, geez, is this this is what happens when all those like 15 and 16 year old people see this musical for the first time? Right? It's like, oh man, it's all it is. It's awesome. Um, I've seen that picture of that kid with the, the sort of stipple point or whatever the engraving uh, with the flag in front of it for so many years. The, oh, the yeah, the portrait of Cosette. Yeah, from the initial release of the book, but that gets turned into the bill for the musical. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, I, I see what you mean, Mark, about that song being problematic. Hugh Jackman's character never really brand, like leaps the divide between his, the Jean Valjean story and the Marius Cosette story, I think, mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, yeah, that's an excellent diagnosis of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, should we talk more about Lane Miz or should we do listener feedback? Let's do some listener feedback because we uh, tweeted and Facebook posted that we wanted to hear your pop culture uh, related New Year's rev- uh, resolutions. Uh, New Year's revolutions, I nearly said uh, in true Les Miserables fa- fashion. To the barricades! Yes. To the barricades! Do you hear the people emailing their resolutions to Matt Rather? <laughs> do, um, do, no, do you hear the people tweet? Oh, tweet. Do you hear the you? Do you yeah. <laughs> Tweeting the... 
Um, all right. Well, let's let's get into this. Uh, should we, I guess we just read? Let's read through them. We can editorialize if we want to, but I want to I want to make sure uh, make sure. And I'm going to say, I guess if you posted on the the Facebook page, you know that your full name is out there in the world. So I, I'll say, well, I'll just give uh, I'll just give first names because why why compound the the privacy debacle, the never ending privacy debacle that is Facebook. Uh, Justin says I'm going to read some of the these damn books I've got lying around the house and finally watch The Wire. Yay! Good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Catherine says, uh, I'm going to make more funny GIFs. The internet needs more funny GIFs. Agreed. <laughs> we need animated GIFs of us. Well, that technology exists. You can make that happen. There are animated GIFs of me in existence, of me eating a sandwich on top of Sandwich Mountain in New Hampshire. <laughs> you can find them. Maybe I'll post one of the show notes or something. <laughs> Wow. Uh, All right. Mike says, uh, I resolve not to judge Joss Whedon harshly for Alien Resurrection. Forgiveness is a true virtue. Yeah, that's that's big of you, Mike. Right off the cutting edge. Like that's that's like that is current is what that is. That is current. Um, <laughs> let's see, uh, Howard, I have a couple of resolutions. First, finish watching the rest of Friday Night Lights. Watch the first season, which was great, but I haven't gotten back to the rest of it. Well, Howard, uh, you do it when Ryan and I do it on the TFT podcast, because we haven't, we haven't started the second season of FNL yet. Um, second, see what this Downton Abbey business is about. Several of my Oh, friends, I need to do that too. Yeah, I need to do that too. Jeez. Have recommended it to me, so I yeah. guess uh, now is as good a time as any. Uh, now is as good a time as any, Howard, because the third season, which um, uh, <laughs> uh, which aired last year uh, in which aired in 2012 in the UK, and which may have fallen off the back of an internet truck right outside my front door, uh, the w- without my you know intending or doing anything to to make that happen um the the third season is is uh is pretty good and um and there just was actually a christmas special for uh the third series of downton abbey that contains major plot points uh that i that i won't spoil but uh get to it before um... santa is real <laughs> in the world of downton abbey say you heard it here first santa claus is an actual supernatural german guy right who travels around <laughs> it's actually yeah it's very strange i mean the show makes this this really dramatic left turn from being a historical drama to being like a speculative fiction you know kind of <laughs> fantasy show that's that's mostly about the the relationship between santa and uh the queen of england the part, the part where he gives the Queen of England a bunch of automatic weapons for her birthday. It's a King of England at the time. King we of England. Say, that's right. right. That's, he goes and he conquers all of Africa himself with machine guns. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> oh, the sun never sets on the Santa Empire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Howard goes on. Third, I want to watch more movies made before 1980. My knowledge of films in that category is really limited, and I want to watch some of the classics. Start with Birth of a Nation. Good place. <laughs> network, 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 network. Best movie made before 1980 is Network, Network. No, it's not. I love that movie, but it's in terms of the late 70s. That's my favorite late 70s uh, movie, I think. Even more than the Godfather movies is Network. Do you guys like Network? Uh, no, I'm, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take Network anymore. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Not everybody. Stewart says uh, he's going to get hold of a book that is called Gangsters or Gorillas, Representation of Irish Republicans 
uh, in Troubles Fiction, uh, which is a book. And he's going to uh, get to work on uh, collating representations, like representations. He calls them ropey representations. Is that Irish Republicans are ropies? That's a, that's a thing I'm not, that's a nickname I'm not familiar with. Uh, but their representation in film, um, Brad Pitt, he says, in The Devil's Own is his favorite accent mangler. So that's uh, excellent, Stuart. That's, uh, give us a call when that article is done because we will be, uh, we will be interested in, in maybe publishing it on Overthinking It. Um, Dan says he's going to really watch movies and TV shows and not just have them on as background noise. Excellent. Well, Dan, make sure you pick your movies and your TV shows uh, very carefully then, because there are a a lot of them that don't deserve to be anything more than background noise. Uh, Zachary says, one, start watching what the overthinkers are watching. Two, comment on the website. And three, encourage people to overthink things. All right, extra points for pandering, Zachary. Yeah, <laughs> flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> uh, Andrew says, uh, one, buy less comic books because they're for 20th century minds. Hey, yo. Wait, lesser comic books or fewer comic no, books? No, he means, he means fewer comic books. He wants to buy Superboy? Like, he wants to buy, like, <laughs> fewer comic books. He wants to, yeah, okay, fair enough. He wants to buy fewer comic books and, two, buy more Lego to build his own 21st century pop culture. Ooh. <laughs> you can make Superboy out of Legos, and it's probably cooler than Superboy the comic book. I mean, if I guess Lego was... The new 52. What? I don't know. I guess Lego is 21st century pop culture in that, like, they have completely sold out and have, like, given themselves to the licensing piece. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to staying to their roots, right? Like, it used to be about the blocks, right? No, seriously, it used to be about the blocks. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding at all. Yeah. <laughs> And now it's about like the four hundred dollar R two D two set or whatever. Yeah, the Pirates of the Caribbean, the yeah, yeah. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance Legos. You know. <laughs> oh man, I would build. You have to make the three jugs and the fountain, and then you have to, and it blows up if you don't do it. Oh man, that would be great. The aqueduct. <laughs> <laughs> And there's like little Lego Jeremy Irons driving a giant Lego truck through a giant Lego aqueduct that's filling with Lego water. Uh, that'd be great. As Lego I was walking to Lego St. Ives, I met a Lego <laughs> man with seven Lego wives. <laughs> Uh, and Ron, finally, this is the last of the Facebook ones. Ron says, I resolve to support any Kickstarter that creates dubstep remixes of Les Miserables songs. <laughs> which, is, which is in reference to my brilliant idea mm-hmm. of doing a, a, a Kickstarter uh, dubstep remix suite of Les Mis. Um, and the, the lyrics that I offered up was, um, I dreamed a dream of wubs gone by <laughs> when bass was low and tracks worth mixing. <laughs> wub, wub, wub. <laughs> Uh, on my own, pretending he's. The system will not accept this input. And life worth living. <laughs> That's a different one. I changed gears. Maybe uh, this is the wrong time in the in the cycle of the podcast to, to mention that I just don't get dubstep a lot of the time. We'll have a whole podcast on that, and, and you'll walk away from it. You'll walk away from it a changed man. <laughs> <You'll, yeah. laughs> uh, moving now to Twitter, people who at replied on Twitter, Earth Dog at Earth Dog 
uh, says, I will spend more money on streaming content to encourage more streaming content. You're here. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all for that, except what do you do after Netflix and Hulu? Uh, there's a cool one called Mubi, uh, M-U-B-I, that has a lot of art films on it. Go, go check it out. Know about it. I mean, I think we can include in that, like, you know, uh, on demand, paying for things like uh, on iTunes and, uh, and Amazon, right? Basically supporting alternative business models that aren't cable company monopolies. I think that's... That are instead the largest corporation in the world by market value. No, that too, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I, I just, I, it makes me kind of funny when people are like, I don't want to be with the big corporations. I want to be with Apple, <laughs> right? No, like, I, didn't uh, anything, I didn't say anything yeah. about you know, corporations, corporations but not big corporations. It's like yeah. monopolistic uh, business models, which right, right, you know, right, also, right. I guess uh, Apple also was very yeah, guilty yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but no, I get you. I, I got you. How it, oh, wow. Yeah, no, we're not going to become that podcast. We're not going there. No, that, no, is no, another, no, that, no. that is another giant rabbit hole full of dwarves eating scones, and we are not going there. Uh, Amanda Jorda uh, on Twitter. Not a re- uh, resolution, but Gab and I went out to lunch yesterday. We what? were internet friends and the site that makes it possible. That's Yay. awesome. That's awesome. I hope that they had a good lunch with nice food. Yeah, where were you? Was Gab in Brazil? Um, Amanda is a listener to the TFT podcast and, and writes into Ryan and me a lot and, and uh, lives uh, in South America, I think. Mm. Um uh, Tim Swan, Tetrarch Angel on Twitter, says, To find and consume new music, not just more from my favorites. Well, then you, you and Twi- Tim need to have a dubstep date. You need to have like a man <laughs> date to do dubstep. And you're just going to pack up some Dead Mouse and you're just going to make some Earl Grey. And the two of you are going to like Oxonian it up to a bunch of, uh, to a bunch of drops. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Just remember when the kids nowadays. When I was a kid, you, you the sort of you if you wanted to do the hand motions, they were sort of lateral, right? Like you would move like side to side, and the wave would go from like elbow to elbow. But now the wave is kind of more circular and longitudinal between your hands. So you sort of spin your hands forward and spin your hands back. This is a great thing to be able to communicate over radio. Right? Like it's how, how, how children these or not children, but how young people these days dance to dubstep differently than we dance the electronica of our youth. But. I digress. I'm sure you guys, you guys, remix. Uh, Shiny Empty Head on Twitter. Uh, My New Year's resolution is to write something, anything, every day. I foresee a lot of movie reviews when inspiration wanes. I mean, like, if it's really to write anything, like a shopping list would suffice, right? Like, uh... yeah, it could be like an old school filibuster where you just like write the phone book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you just copy it like you could make an illuminated manuscript of the phone book that would be pretty awesome <laughs> just to make sure that information is not lost to the ages um but yeah no write stuff write fan fiction write more goku and frank fan fiction because that one story that everyone has read have you guys not read that one that isn't enough there's uh there um, should be i think wait, you have to, i mean, think we have to include that in the show notes i'm not <laughs> with the goku and frank yeah, it's not erotic i mean it's 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 romantic but it's not erotic <laughs> It's called Until the End of Time, and it's the ridiculous, most ridiculous piece of fan fiction I've ever read. So. Uh, Mart RJ, M-A-R-T-R-J on Twitter, uh, says that, that uh, says, been seeing many important films. I want to watch more random streaming or secondhand DVD films with no prior expectations. I have one word for you. Xanadu. 
<laughs> Xanadu is available on Netflix instant, instant streaming. It's the it's a, a musical from 1980 starring Olivia Newton John and also the guy from The Warriors. Um, it is it is sloppy and it's balls out insane. It's fan, it's only it's only a, 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 like an hour and a half as well. So you're not going to waste too much of your life if you don't like it. Uh, it's fantastic. It's so great. Oh, Gene Kelly's in it too. Gene Kelly. Um. Yeah, I want I want to uh, recommend a film that I saw recently. Oh, I'm trying to look it up on IMDb and not having not having luck, but I can go in uh through the um I can I can get it through the uh I can get it through the actor because I know who the actor is. Gabrielle Mocked from Suits. I want to recommend a little film that I just came across one day on uh Netflix instant streaming. Um it's uh oh it's SWAT 2 Firefight. <laughs> you remember, you remember the 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 fundamental choice. Either you're SWAT or you're not. <laughs> and SWAT 2 Firefight despite anything else that may or may not be true about it is SWAT. <laughs> so there you go. Damn. I remember one of our buddies also always used to quote the commercial to the original SWAT when the guy goes, $100 million! <laughs> and uh, as he's yelling out to all the criminals how much he would pay them to get him free of the SWAT team. <laughs> um, yeah, he used to say that just at opportune moments. And I, I, I want to mention that SWAT Firefight features as the villain uh, Robert Patrick. In Ooh. in a tri- in a in a, uh, a performance that is a masterpiece of getting paid. <laughs> nice <laughs> actors who work, ladies yes. and gentlemen. T one thousand. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul B D says I'm going to finally finish watching the last two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, Gab, whose Twitter is Gab's the Boss, says I resolved not to see any teen paranormal romance movies. Oh, man. So not that zombie one with the guy who's dating Jennifer Lawrence? Warm bodies? <laughs> is that paranormal? Is zombie paranormal? I think so. Probably. Sure. Yeah. I'm not, I, I can resolve not to see that movie also. <laughs> like, I, that's not really a high priority for I me. Mean, I, I think that like, maybe Les Miserables is a paranormal romance movie because of the, uh, you know, the, the role of divine providence in like, uh, you know, making things come out just so. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I feel like we have to dig into the meaning of the of the prefix para in more detail to truly understand what is paranormal and what isn't paranormal. But I don't think we have time to do it at this moment, so that's going to go in the footnotes. So, well, I don't have time. I don't have room to write it in the margins, so I'll I'll, I'll make a fuller explanation <laughs> later. And have room. So, uh, yeah. well, happy uh, 2013, Overthinkers. Remember January 26th. It's a Saturday. That's when we'll be in New York City. If you mm-hmm. wanted to uh, add your resolutions, why not uh, leave a comment in the show notes? Uh, if you want, you can also call or text 203-285-6401 or email podcast at overthinkingit.com. We never go away, so we will be back with another podcast next week. Until then, you can visit us on the website at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve podcast podcast Ambien no so moving on up 
Por Cortés, por un departamento de los Stanley Ciel. Moving on up, por Cortés. No hago en fin un bintu humoso de la tarde. That's, that's <laughs> Google Translate. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> They just translate moving on up as moving on up. 